Uh, Revelation chapter 3, if you can find your place in verse 14, that's where we'll begin as we look at the church at Laodicea. But as we find our place, I wanted to tell you about the kid who got a bad report card. Johnny, a 16-year-old kid, knew that he would be grounded forever when his mother saw the deeds and the F's that he'd made. So he thought he might soften the blow a little bit, and he decided to write her a letter and leave it in the kitchen where he knew she would find it when she came home. And sure enough, she did. She looked on the kitchen counter, and there was a handwritten note. And here's what it said. Dear Mom, I'm sorry to tell you this way, but I've decided to elope with my new girlfriend. I wanted to avoid a scene with you and Dad. I have found true love with Stacy, and she is so nice and beautiful. But I knew that you would not approve of her because of her piercings and tattoos and tight motorcycle clothes. And by the way, she's several years older than me. But it's not only the true love, Mom. You see, she's pregnant with twins. Stacy said that we would be very happy. She's opened my eyes to the fact that marijuana doesn't really hurt anyone. In fact, we'll be growing it for ourselves in the hippie commune we decided to join in California. Don't worry, Mom. I'm 16, practically an adult. I know how to take care of myself. Someday, I'm sure, I'll be back to visit so you can meet your many grandchildren. Now, how many of you moms and dads would have a heart attack at that point? But it wasn't done. There was a postscript. P.S. Mom, none of the above is true. I'm over at Jason's house. I just wanted to remind you that there are worse things in life than a bad report card that's in my bedroom. <laughs> so, so call me when it's safe to come back home again. Now, it's one thing to bring home a bad report card from school. And if we took a show of hands, many of us in the room probably did that at one point and somehow survived to live and tell about it. But how ashamed and embarrassed would we be if Jesus took an assessment of our life or our church and gave us a spiritual report card with low marks? Well, one could argue that that is exactly what Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is about. It is, in effect, a series of seven spiritual report cards sent out to seven churches... And there Jesus grades them on their doctrine and their deeds. And just as it is in school, there were churches in this group of seven that fared better than others. Some did very well. They got an A. Some did very badly and they had things to work on. They had D's and F's. But if there is one church among the seven who failed almost in every area where they were graded, it was the church at Laodicea. Now the words that Jesus gives this group of believers is utterly scathing. In fact, Jesus has nothing positive to say about the Laodiceans. The conduct of this church, we will read, is so revolting, so repulsing to the Lord that it actually made Him sick. 
So you might say this, if Ephesus was loveless and Sardis was lifeless, then Laodicea is worthless. If you travel around and you study the names of churches in our area, I've seen churches name themselves after other New Testament churches, haven't you? Antioch Baptist or Berea Baptist or Macedonia, etc., But I have never come across a Laodicea Baptist church. And you don't see churches naming themselves after Laodicea for the same reason that mothers don't name their sons Judas or Hitler. Because of the reputation attached to the church. John MacArthur, who is a great Bible scholar and commentator, he wrote these words about the letter to Laodicea. He said this, The church at Laodicea represents such apostate churches that have existed throughout history. It is the last and worst of the seven churches addressed by our Lord. The downward spiral that began at Ephesus and continued through Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis has reached the bottom at Laodicea. He continued, Even at Sardis there were some true believers left, but the church at Laodicea was totally unregenerate and a false church. It has the grim distinction of being the only one of the seven for whom Christ has no positive word of commendation. Now as we study this letter to the Laodiceans, what we're going to see is it is both a mirror and a megaphone. It's a megaphone to warn us to avoid the sins that Laodicea committed, and it is also a mirror by which we can examine ourselves to see where our spiritual temperature is. Now, as we open our letter today, I want you to notice, number one, the curse of lukewarm Christianity. And we read about this in verse 14 through 16. The curse of lukewarm Christianity. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. If you read it in the old King James, it's even more gruesome. He says, I will vomit you out. Every time I read this passage, I think about when I was a college student at UNC. In the middle of the campus, there is a landmark known as the Old Well. Anytime you watch a basketball game or a football game, they always show Franklin Street and then they show the Old Well. It's a landmark there in campus. Right now, it's basically a glorified water fountain. There is actually a water fountain there and you can go and drink from it. The campus tradition says that if a student drinks from the old well on the first day of class, you'll have good luck. Well, I never found that to be true, but one day I was jogging through campus. I was trying to get my daily exercise, and if you know anything about Chapel Hill, it's one of the hottest holes in all of North Carolina in August and September. It is a muggy place, it's a humid place, and it was one of those days where I was running around campus trying to get my exercise. The sweat was rolling off of my body, and my mouth was as dry as a cotton ball. And as I turned the corner, 
down the street, I saw the old well in the distance, and I thought, I'm going to stop there at the old well and get me a swig of water before I turn and hit the home stretch and finish up my exercise. Well, when I got there, I pushed the button on the water fountain, and I started to drink from it, and it was the most putrid, copper-tasting water I had ever put on my tongue. In fact, I think a mouthful of pennies and more refreshing than the water that came out of the old well. And my initial reaction when I took it in was to go and spit it out. And every time I read this passage, I think about that instance. Now, according to what we just read here, there is nothing more distasteful to our Lord than lukewarm Christianity. Now, to understand a little bit of background about this church, let me show you something about their unique geography. Because if you study where Laodicea was stationed there in Asia Minor, they were in an interesting spot. Laodicea sat between two towns, Colossae and Hierapolis. Laodicea actually was in between two natural springs. Historians tell us that there were hot mineral baths in nearby Hierapolis, and a fresh cold water spring in Colossae. And the Romans had actually built aqueducts from both of these springs to transport water to the people of Laodicea. But something happened. By the time that the hot water had arrived from Hierapolis, it had cooled down. And by the time that the cold water that was piped from Colossae to Laodicea arrived there, it had warmed up. And so what the Laodiceans received was water that wasn't hot enough to be relaxing, nor was it cold enough to be refreshing. In fact, the water there was tepid and putrid, and it wasn't really good. And Jesus borrows this analogy that the Laodiceans would have instantly connected with and said, you are like this, church. You're not hot, you're not cold. What are you? Whatever you are, he said, you make me sick. Now, why is that? Because lukewarm Christianity has nothing to offer anybody. Those who are on fire for the Lord bring a good witness to the gospel. But those who are ice cold, they are not interested in spiritual things, but at least they're not making any pretense about it. They're not hypocrites. But lukewarm Christianity is that thing which our God detests. Why? Because lukewarm Christians really are a mystery. What are they? Well, they say they're saved and born again, but they have no desire to reach the lost. They will come to church, but don't ask them to serve. Don't ask them to volunteer or do anything. When they do attend, it's only out of convenience with their schedule, as long as there's not a ball game or a trip that interferes with what they've got on their agenda. A lukewarm Christian says, I love Jesus with their lips, but it doesn't show up in their giving report. Don't ask a lukewarm Christian to give or tithe, because they just won't do it. In short, I would say this, lukewarm Christians want enough of Jesus to get their hell insurance, but not... Enough of Jesus to actually radically change their life. They want to give God the leftovers after they've spent everything else in the world 
They'll give God second-rate worship and not give Him their first and their best. And when it comes to taking a stand, a lukewarm Christian wants to remain neutral. They want to ride the fence. They want to be a fence-sitter. I don't mean to be crude or crass or disgusting or anything like that, but I grew up in the country, and we were surrounded by farm animals. And my papa, he raised chickens one time, and I remember watching my papa cut the head off of a chicken. You, you people who grew up in that environment, you're, you know what I'm talking about. As a kid, I sat in the backyard near the barn, and I watched my papa go in and get the chicken out of the barn. He put it on the chop block, and he cut its head off. He threw the chicken down on the ground, and it started to flap around and flop around. And it was a startling thing to me. And I can remember asking my papa, I said, Papa, is he alive or is he dead? And you know what he said? Neither. And friend, that's the problem with lukewarm Christianity. Are they hot or are they cold? You can't tell if they're spiritually alive or spiritually dead. You don't know what they are. You don't know what their stance is. You don't know what they believe. A.W. Tozer, the great theologian, he wrote these words about lukewarm Christianity. He said, quote, Modern Christianity has been watered down until the solution is so weak that if it were poison, it wouldn't hurt anyone. And if it were medicine, it wouldn't cure anyone. That's a description of the American church today if I've ever read it. That's the curse of lukewarm Christianity. But then I want you to notice number two, the causes of lukewarm Christianity. Jesus is a great spiritual physician. And in the middle part of this letter, verse 17, Jesus gives two symptoms that plague the believers here in Laodicea. And He helps us to understand what was it that caused them to be lukewarm. In verse 17, at the first part of that, He gives symptom number one, which I would call comfort. He says in verse 17, For you say, I am rich, and I have prospered, and I need nothing. Now, historians are quick to tell us that if you study the background of Laodicea, that this was a posh, cosmopolitan, prosperous city. They had three great industries there in that city in the first century. Finances, and fashion, and pharmaceuticals. Laodicea, first of all, was a banking center. It was known throughout the Roman Empire for its financial power. The city was also known for fashion. They raised a very rare and luxurious type of black wool in the city that was considered a luxury item and it was sold for clothing and rugs and those kinds of things. And then also in Laodicea, they had a medical school. In fact, they had an industry there where they took some plants and made it into a capsule and the capsule was meant to be crushed and mixed with water to form a paste. And they actually produced this capsule that was distributed throughout the Roman Empire. And the paste was actually an eye salve that people were to put on their eyes to solve all kinds of infections and eye problems. And now you can see why Jesus says this. You say that you are rich and you're prosper and you have need of nothing because the lifestyle there in the city of Laodicea of making money and being rich and comfortable had bled now into the heart of this church. And the problem was that the spirit of materialism 
had caused them to be spiritually complacent, had caused them to be lazy and lukewarm. When I read that, I thought, huh, how accurate a description of the American church today. Look at our country. Look at the United States of America. We are the most wealthy and prosperous nation in the history of the nations, and yet we're the most bored. We have the highest suicide rate. We're killing ourselves by the hundreds every day with drug overdoses. We are drunken, not only with liquor and wine, but with sexual immorality, and our divorce rate is sky high. You name all of the problems that we have, and yet alongside of that, look at how much we have. And that has bled into the church. Think about the American church today. We're the most wealthy church. We have great sprawling campuses. We have uh, talent. We have big worship budgets and so on. And yet, if you look at the statistics and the numbers in America, the church is dying. Our baptisms are as low as they've ever been. We don't share the gospel with anybody. And when you examine the average life of the Christian today, there's no difference in the behavior of the world and the church. And we look at ourselves and we say, wow, look at our budget. Look at our building. Look at our celebrity pastor. And we say we're rich and prosper and have need of nothing. Joseph Son was a Romanian pastor. He was actually in prison for his faith during the days of communist rule. He made this observation. He said this, 90% of Christians may pass the test of adversity, but 90% of Christians will fail the test of prosperity. You know... There's an interesting study that was done a few years ago in 2015. It was the Pew Research Group. They studied religion across the world. And they came away with an interesting connection. They noticed that there was a connection between a nation's wealth and the importance that they placed on religion. And what they found is that the wealthier a country becomes, the less significant religion plays in the lives of its people. And the researcher said this at the end, Americans and Europeans place less important on religion in their lives than do a number of people in third world countries in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. You say, why is that? Because the more that we have, the less that we are desperate and dependent upon God. The more that we have, the more prideful our hearts become. The more that we have, the less urgency we have to share the gospel with the dying and the broken. Because we've got all of our needs met. Why don't we just sit here and soak in sour? We don't need to do anything. And yet, we have it backwards in the church. We have it completely reversed. We look at our world and we think, persecution, that's bad. That would kill the church. And yet, the thing that is killing us is prosperity. It killed the nation of Israel. It killed the church in Laodicea. The number one contributor to spiritual apathy in the church or in the life of any Christian is prosperity. Where we get to the point to where we say, we don't need God. We're fine just the way that we are. And Jesus looks at that and says, you make me sick. Take that name church off because you're nothing more than just a country club. You don't need me. You don't want me. 
it seems that there is an inverse relationship between spiritual desire and financial wealth. The more that we have, the less we think we need God. You talk about influenza in America, in the church, we have a problem called affluenza. We have so much that we are comfortable and we say, things are just fine, Lord. I think we can go on without you. That's the first cause, comfort. The second cause of their lukewarmness is also in verse 17, it's conceit. Look at what he says here. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing, here it is, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Notice how Jesus hit on all of the industries that they boasted about in Laodicea. They boasted of their great pharmaceuticals, their ISAV. He said, you're blind. They boasted of their wealth and their resources. He says, you're poor. They boasted about their clothing industry and the fine wool that they produced. He said, you're naked. Everything that this church said was a positive was a negative. They kind of remind me, the people at Laodicea do, of the builders of the Titanic. You know, if you study the builders of the Titanic, it said that they made it intentionally without enough lifeboats on board. Because they thought, well, number one, the ship is unsinkable. And number two, if we put all those lifeboats on there, it's going to clutter the deck. And boy, did they pay for that mistake. And the church at Laodicea is conceited in that very same way that they've come to be naked and poor and blind and they don't even know it. In fact, they look at their bottom line. They look at their worship. They look at their church and they say, we've arrived. We've got it made. We're the model church. Not so in the eyes of Jesus. Man looks on the outward. God looks on what? The heart. Dr. Stephen Lawson, he's a professor at Master's Seminary. He's a fine expositor. I took just an excerpt from one of his books. Listen to what he writes about the church during the Laodicean age. He said this, As the church advances into the 21st century, the stress to produce booming ministries will be greater and greater. The church is influenced by corporate mergers and towering skyscrapers and expanding economies. Bigger is perceived as better in the church. The Wall Street mentality has now come into the contemporary worshiper. Sad to say, pressure to produce bottom line results has led many ministries to sacrifice centrality of biblical preaching on the altar of man-centered pragmatism. In other words, hey, people don't want to hear preaching about sin and judgment? We won't preach on that. We'll preach on whatever gets butts in seats. He says, a new way of doing church is emerging. The exposition is being replaced with entertainment. Preaching is now a performance. Doctrine is replaced with drama. And theology is replaced with theatrics. The pulpit, which was once the focal point of the church, is now being overshadowed by a variety of church growth techniques. Everything from trendy worship styles to glitzy presentations to vaudeville-like pageantries. In seeking to capture the upper hand in church growth, he said a new wave of pastors is reinventing the church and repackaging the gospel into a product to be sold to consumers. Is that not hitting the nail on the head of the American church or what? 
Listen to me. Don't you be deceived, folks. Just because a church can boast hundreds and thousands of people on their roll, just because they have big multi-site campuses, just because they have cutting-edge worship and a celebrity pastor and a marketing department that could sell snow to an Eskimo, in God's eyes, He doesn't look at the outside. He looks at the hearts of the people. And none of those things that we look as markers of good and successful ministry matters to the eyes of Jesus. Jesus totally rips the facade off of this group in Laodicea and He says, you're poor and you're shallow and you're blind and you're not as good as you think you are. You're a mess in fact. As we have studied the church through these seven, I've been quick to point out to you that there's a second level in which we can study these churches. And that second level is to look at them prophetically. Look at what each church teaches us about a separate era in church history. Ephesus was that apostolic church. They had lost their first love. That was the church in the book of Acts and through the first century. Smyrna was the persecuted church that came along later in the 100 and 200 and 300s where the Roman Empire persecuted the church and tried to stamp it out. Then there was Pergamum. That was the church that was married to the world. And we saw that during that time period, their Christianity was made legal and they married the church and the state together. The Catholic faith was born. Thyatira was the immoral church. And we said that that was a lot like the immoral church of the Middle Ages where there was all kinds of heresy and corruption. Philadelphia was that missionary church. The door was open where they could do missions and send people across the globe. And then we come to Laodicea. And most scholars are very confident that Laodicea is a picture of the church from about 1925 forward to present day. It's a picture of the church that is on the earth right prior to the rapture happening. And most of them say that we are living in that time period. We are living in Laodicea here in America. The folks are lukewarm. They're apathetic. They're worldly. They're apostate. And that's why I advise any young people going into ministry. I talk to guys going into ministry all the time. I say, listen... You better be dead set that this is what God has called you to do because according to the times and the seasons, ministry is going to get harder and harder from this day forward. Look at the trend that our culture is going. Look how the darkness is growing. Look how the church is falling away. Friend, just go ahead and make your mind up. It's not going to get easier to serve Jesus. Because we are in that Laodicean age. There's a a good side to it as well. Praise God. That's the church that's on the earth right before the rapture takes place. It's a dark time. It's a time when you could lose your head. But it's also an exciting time, friend, because I believe that Jesus is closer today than He was a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, or whatever the case. The last of the last days. What an exciting time to live. What a great time to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only can you see the signs of the times, but you know that each day is a little bit closer to when the skies open and the trumpet is blown and the cry of command is given and the church goes up, up and away. That's the causes for lukewarm Christianity. 
That's also the curse of lukewarm Christianity. But let me finish here today and tell you about the cure for lukewarm Christianity. In the close of this letter, Dr. Jesus, the good physician here, gives two cures of how this church can go from sick to healthy. In verses 18 and 19, he gives the first counsel. He says, repent. Repent of our sins. Verse 18 says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous, here it is, and repent. If you study the seven letters to the seven churches, you know one word that you're going to see repeated over and over and over again is? Repent. He said it to the church in Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 5. He said it to Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 16. He said it to Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 21. He said it to Sardis, chapter 3, verse 3. And now he says it again to the Laodiceans. Repent. And notice what he adds there. Come from me and I'll give you gold and I will give you white garments. Now when Jesus tells His people this, He isn't indicating any kind of salvation by works. Nothing like that. What He was saying was, look, you have misplaced your priorities. You have invested in the wrong kingdom. You've put all of your eggs in the basket of finances and pharmaceuticals and fashion. And in other words, what he's telling the church is stop investing in the things of the world that will have no eternal value. Return to me and I will be your true source of blessing. Come to me and I'll give you treasure that will last forever. That's what he's saying here to these, pre- these people. They were proud of their bank accounts that they overflowed with silver and gold. And he says, come to me and I'll show you how to lay up treasure in heaven that the moths can't get it and that the thieves can't steal. They were proud of their fine garments. And Jesus says, you come to me and you take off the rags of sin and I'll clothe you in my righteousness. They were proud of their eye salve. And Jesus said to them, come to me and I'll give you spiritual sight. I'll open your eyes to things that you've been blind to. And as we read this today, church, in our modern era, here's the question we have to ask ourselves individually and corporately, what do we have to repent of? I don't know what it is in your heart, in your life, but what do we need to repent of in our church? Materialism, apathy, pride, a lukewarm spirit that we bring into worship. What do we have to repent of? I like the way that one old country preacher said it. He said it like this. He said, it's time for God's church to wake up and sing up and pray up and preach up and never give up, let up, back up or shut up until the church is filled up or Jesus calls us and we go up. Repent of our sins. Then the second cure, verse 20 through 22, is respond to the Savior. Look at what he says in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. 
The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is probably the saddest picture of the modern day, the Laodicean age, is that Jesus is on the outside of the church trying to get in. And He says, we open up and let me come into the church that I purchased with my own blood. There's an interesting parallel, by the way, between the, the two comings of Christ. The first time that Jesus came, the Bible says in John 1.11 that He came into His own and His own received Him not. There wasn't any room for Him. And then He says upon His second coming in Luke 18, He says, when the Son of Man returns, will He find any faith on the earth. Prior to Christ's return, we can expect the faith to grow dim. You know, that's some of the saddest words on earth. We don't have any room for you. Wasn't that the words that the innkeeper said to Jesus when he was still in Mary's womb? They knocked on the door of the inn. We don't have any room. You're going to have to go somewhere else. Wasn't that the message at the cross? As Jesus hung there bleeding and dying for the sins of the, the people, the, our sins that put Him there. What's the overarching message? The world had rejected the Son of God. We don't have any place for you, Jesus, except a criminal's cross. And yet, look at where we are today in most church settings. He gets the same treatment. He comes to the door of the church. He comes to the door of the human heart and says... Can I come in? Can I fellowship with you? Can I spend some time with you? And what we say when we make Him number two or three or whatever it is on the list is, I ain't got room for you, Jesus. You know what? There's a sad picture here, but it also says a whole lot about the heart of Christ, doesn't it? He is patient. Even when we have shut Him out, even when we have cast Him to the outskirts of our lives, He doesn't... Stop knocking. He doesn't stop pursuing. He doesn't stop coming after the sinner. He lovingly and patiently and persistently pursues the heart of those who have rejected Him and have shut Him out. There's a wonderful quote from C.S. Lewis about this very thing. He said this, You must have wondered why God doesn't make more use of His power. In other words, why doesn't He just break down the door? but merely to override human will would be for him useless. He cannot ravish. He can only woo. In other words, Christ doesn't desire a dictatorship. What He wants is lordship and fellowship. He says, you open up the door of your church. You open up the door of your life. You let me in. I'll sit at the head of the table and I'll be your Lord and we'll have some sweet fellowship together. We'll enjoy intimacy and oneness. This verse right here, Revelation 3.20, has inspired one of the most well-known religious paintings. Here it is on the screen. It's called The Light of the World. Done by British artist Holman Hunt. It became one of the most recognized religious paintings in modern history. It's been copied and reproduced over and over again. Notice the picture here. 
Jesus is standing at a closed door. His hand is rapping on the outside to be let in. He holds a lantern in one hand. And his other hand is trying to gain entrance. The story goes that when Holman Hunt, the artist who painted this, revealed it to the public, one critic walked up to him at that unveiling. And he said, sir, this is a wonderful painting, but you've made one mistake. He said, there's no doorknob. Where's the doorknob on the front door? Christ can't get in. And Holman Hunt turned to his critic and he said, of course. He said, that's the whole purpose. Because in order to let Jesus in, the door is on the inside. And you have to open it yourself. And what Holman Hunt tried to get through this painting was that Jesus is the consummate gentleman. He will not force Himself upon anybody or any church against their will. But friend, if you open the door and you let Him in, He changes things. You can't have Jesus in your life and be the same person, be the same church. He comes in, He brings warmth, He brings love, He brings forgiveness and grace. He also brings life. Maybe you shut Jesus out of some part of your life. Yeah, He might be your Savior and He might be your Lord, but you haven't given Him access. You haven't granted Him the ability to go wherever He needs to in your life to bring some real change. You're holding on to something. There's some closed doors in your life. He doesn't have the access to it. I wonder if you need to repent of that. You need to open the door and say, Lord, you need to come in here and clean out. Lord, I repent of this sin. You need to help me do better. Maybe we need that as a church too. We got some things we need to repent of as a people. And say, Lord, if we're going to reach our community, if we're going to be a church that's here a hundred years from now, if you tarry, we got to change some things, Lord. And it begins right here. Because the church isn't about a building. It isn't about a budget. It isn't even about one preacher. You know what it's about? The people. What God does in the hearts of the people.